Professor Quincy Adams Wagstaff. Members of the faculty, faculty members, students of Huxley and Huxley students. I guess that covers everything. Welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. This is episode number four, Myths, More and Less. I'm Bob Gassell, and I'm once again joined by my two co-hosts. First, Mr. Noah Diamond. Noah, where are you speaking to us from today? I'm talking to us from my desk in New York City. So be aware there may be sirens and gunplay in the background. (laughs) (laughs) I'm walking here. (laughs) And speaking to us all the way from Bath, England, is uh, Matthew Conium. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm in an insufferably hot Bath, England. Uh, I have the blinds down and the windows open, but it's doing no good. So what sounds may we hear in the background there? You will hear uh, birds chirping in the trees and my son uh, fighting with the girl next door. And once again, I want to welcome you to the only Marx Brothers podcast with three people on it. And <laughs> our intention is for us to rotate the host each episode. And this was actually Noah's turn to host, but we're doing a podcast next month that we think uh, he would be more in tune with. Uh, hint, hint. So I've decided to take over the reins for this podcast. Okay. So now that we get that out of the way, first thing we're going to talk about is Marx Brothers myths, things that are usually said about the brothers and written about them that we don't necessarily agree with. And uh, the things that we've come up with aren't factual. They're not really things that could be proven one way or another. And so even when we get done, people may disagree, but these are generalizations that we are taking issue with. So To get the ball rolling, let's go to Noah. Uh, Well, the first myth that I have chosen to talk about is the notion that Harpo was a mime, which you run into all the time in Marx Brothers literature and in conversations about them. And I think there's a good reason for it, which is that the word mime is a nice, convenient shorthand to refer to a comedian who doesn't speak. And there's nobody else like Harpo who chose over the course of a long career to make um, vocal silence his main character trait. Um, I I mean, I suppose there are people like uh, Teller of Penn and Teller who have been non-speaking entertainers. But there's not a lot to compare Harpo to, a comedian who could have spoken during his career but chose not to. Uh, and mime is a nice shorthand for it. Um, we don't have to say non-speaking comedian all the time. Uh, but if you really dig into what these words mean, uh, Harpo very rarely does anything that we would call pantomime. And it seems to me that the essence of his character is diametrically opposed to the MO of pantomime. You know, the wonderful thing about talented mimes is that they can create illusions strictly with their technique as performers. A mime makes you buy into the idea that he's trapped in a box because he behaves as though he's trapped in a box. Um, Harpo's just the opposite. You know, in Coconuts, he actually is trapped in jail, um, yeah. and he makes you believe that he isn't because he can <laughs> just he can just remove a bar without thinking about it and emerge. Um A mime uh, may hand you a flower and do it with such delicacy and gestural precision that you go to take the flower from him, thinking you might feel it between your fingers. Um, The emphasis is on the skills and technique of the performer. With Harpo, it would be just the opposite. His coat would contain an impossible quantity of actual flowers, and you would find yourself buried in them. 
So that's what I have to say. I'm sure I've made both of you angry and you will now challenge me. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I never thought of him as a mime. I've thought of him as a Jew. So, <laughs> No, you see, a Jew behaves as though he's trapped in a box. <laughs> but, you know, it's, as it's been brought up, it's understood that the Harpo's character, at least in his prime, when we like him the best, is when he chooses not to speak, not that he, he can't speak. Yeah, and that's why the I think the times he comes closest to what would be properly described as pantomime are times when he's kind of compromising the essence of the character he became famous playing, you know, like the charades scenes in Day at the Races and its imitators. Uh, that could be called pantomime. But even so, it, it seems to me, except when he plays the harp, Harpo is generally showcasing not his talent, not his technique, but his ideas. He's a conceptual comedian and basically a verbal comedian, too. You know, most of his humor does deal with language, even though he doesn't speak himself. Right. Um, he's generally still pretty much the same way Groucho and Chico do, riffing on things that are being said to him. And I think as a kind of sidebar to that point, comparisons between Harpo and comedians of the silent era although they do seem natural, uh, I'm not sure they really hold a lot of water. People say Harper would have been wonderful in silent movies. And of course, everything he did was wonderful. So it's easy to make that claim. He's wonderful in his uh, brief appearances in Too Many Kisses. But part of what makes his character's silence so audacious is that he's silent in a world where speech is the norm. Yes, he would be greatly diminished uh, as a comic character in in a silent film. He would be he would be uh, exactly analogous to how a talking comedian would be diminished in a silent film. In exactly the same way, he would have half a yeah. persona. Do you think the character would have worked if he spoke with just very little, like the homage to him in Brain Donors? I think the individual gags probably would have worked. Uh, overall, I don't think the character would have seemed as magical. Um, in uh, Give Me a Thrill, I suggest as a thought exercise, you know, just imagine if Harpo's familiar routines were punctuated with spoken interjections. And and now tell me if he reminds you of Chaplin or Keaton, you know, and I think the answer is pretty clearly no. It's a totally different kind of character and comedy. Um, Matthew Hahn made a point recently, something that, that hadn't struck me at all. Apparently, there is a moment in The Coconuts where he whispers, not audibly, but but nonetheless does go over to Oscar Shaw and, and whispers something in his ear. Uh, so that's something that I'd forgotten about or missed, which is the most explicit example I can think of, of uh, it, it being absolutely asserted that he can speak and doesn't. You know, there's there's that line now. Uh, you know, th this guy's making himself out to be a dummy, and I'd always I'd always um, mention that one as the most explicit uh, case of that. But it but it, uh, this would be even more so. And again, you know, so that that's reinforcing that his his comic, the whole comic idea of Harpo is that he is a silent person in the sound world, uh, and that it's a choice. It seems to me that it's very specifically Marxian and uh, Har Har Harpovian. Um, <laughs> to that the fact that he took his silence seriously but not too seriously you know he he didn't violate yeah. his character by speaking on film but you know singing along during sweet adeline or under his breath kind of cueing his fellow performers uh mm. you know that was fine with him and let's not forget the sneeze absolutely the <laughs> yes, at the circus yeah. achu <laughs> It's all right. I'm too! 
stand in the rain and he's sneezing. Although it seems to be very clear if you listen, that's, that's actually Zeppo sneezing and it was dubbed in later. <laughs> it's funny. You know what? As I was doing research for this, once again, I go back to my newspapers.com, my trusty old source and start looking for references to Harpo as a mime and not speaking. And, you know, there's so many times I wish I had a dollar for every time it's mentioned that he has spoken for the first time in his career on stage. Mm. <laughs> On stage, yeah, yeah. In personal appearances. He did it a handful of times in the 30s. You see it more and more in the 40s, almost regularly in the 50s. And by the 60s, pretty, it's pretty much every time he appears, it says he's he's speaking for the first time since It's 19- like Frank Sinatra retiring, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah, just- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've always wondered what Harpo did in, in personal appearances when he wasn't necessarily on stage, like uh, when they were getting their handprints put into the Chinese at the Grauman's Chinese theater, mm. did he appear in character the whole time and not speak? And also if he'd, if he'd lived into the, into the Dick Cavett age, would he have, would he have refused to go on? And I'm guessing he would have been the one chosen to speak the one word in Mel Brooks's silent movie. Oh yes. Yes. Good yes. Point. yes. Would he have done it? Um, I do know that both Les Marsden and Seth Sheldon um, had a um, a sort of principled refusal to speak when they were in costume as Harpo, mm-hmm. um, even to the point of, you know, if you go up to them and talk to them while they're in costume, they'll take off the wig and then speak to you um, because they didn't want to violate the sort of vow of silence that that character had taken. Oh, see, now people are going to be testing them like they do to the, gar- the, the guards at Buckingham Palace if they get any break character. <laughs> Trying to get him to say murder. See, I wonder if I light him with a match. If he'll, uh, <laughs> he'll say to me. Hey, I'll give you $10,000 if you say murder. <laughs> and speaking of busting myths, I think Matthew has some thoughts on this one. The, the murder one I don't believe in because it's because it's night in Casablanca because it's David Lowe um, and it's it's you know it's just one of one of the dozens and dozens of things you know that he did I'm, I'm not aware immediately of any other specific ones are there any other ones that we know going back as far as the night at the opera there were reports that he was going to speak and that you know there were reports that he actually took a, a voice test yes yes they're always so the same with with murder, you know. Obviously, there it's just a very very obvious publicity story to uh, to to go with. But I don't think there was ever any real substance at all. There's a lovely one, isn't there? I think it's about Night of the Opera, where one of them says he will be speaking, but not uh, he won't actually be um, having dialogue, but we'll hear his thoughts. We'll we'll hear his spoken thoughts on the soundtrack. I think that was opera. Oh. Um, but yeah, obviously, that, I don't think there's any real substance to any of any of them. As I mentioned on the uh, on the Facebook group, I wonder how long Chico would have lasted uh, refusing those big offers to speak had he been the one in that <laughs> <Yeah>. position. <laughs> that would be an interesting revisionist project, though, to do a cut of A Night at the Opera and give Harpo an internal monologue <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that runs throughout the movie. You know, like the interior monologues in uh, Hannah and Her Sisters. You know, you could just have Harpo saying, like, Central Park is turning green again. <laughs> Soon it will be summer. That manicurist is cute. I wonder what her name is. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Why does Les Barry hate me? What have I done? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a good dresser. Leave me alone. He'll never give me a reference now. <laughs> uh, here comes the villain to invoke audience sympathy again. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to talk about the 
another generalization made about the Marxists in their careers. And once again, this is something that isn't necessarily a fact. It can't be proven one way or the other. And I'm sure people will still disagree. And I know some of the pe- specific people who will disagree on this one. I want to talk about the generalization that Alan Jones and Kenny Baker and Tony Martin and all the MGM stiffs were replacements for Zeppo. It's, it's, it's an understandable mistake. And there is a bit of overlap as to their roles. But when you look at the big picture, it just doesn't, it doesn't really hold. To start with, let's go back to the beginning of their uh, film career in Coconuts and Animal Crackers. Um, those films had the, you know, the four Marxes and they had their romantic leads. But nobody spoke, nobody thought of Oscar Shaw or Hal Thompson as the, the fifth Marx brother. They didn't think, oh, he's taking Gummo's role or he's taking Manfred's role. <laughs> nobody thought of them as the fifth Marx brother. And when we got to MGM, they basically reinstated those roles, those romantic lead roles. And now all of a sudden people thought that they were replacing Zeppo when they were just adding in the romantic lead element that had been there much earlier in their career. Thalberg wanted a traditional romantic lead. He wanted to get the women into the theater. He wanted the women to be invested into the romance. And Zeppo was not the person who was going to do it. The main reason for this misunderstanding is the midsection of A Night at the Opera, from the stateroom scene through to the hotel scene, where Alan Jones is sort of with the Marxes. He's right in the middle of their hijinks. He's he's sort of even taking part. He's right in the room with them. He's dressed as an aviator. But notice that he doesn't really do anything. He I don't think he has a line in any of these scenes. He's just sitting in the background. Mm. But the main point I want to make is that at no point in this film during these scenes or anywhere else does Groucho or any of the other brothers treat him like they did Zeppo. Groucho treats him with total respect, does not demean him. You know, if it was Zeppo coming out of the trunk, I'm sure he would have got an earful from Groucho, you know? So <laughs> at no point does he really, does Alan Jones or any of these other guys relate to Groucho the way that Zeppo did? I couldn't agree more, Bob. I've got nothing to, nothing to contradict anything you just said. I, I do, I also agree with the, um, secondary point you make, which is that in a night at the opera, some effort is made to make Alan Jones part of the quartet. Even isn't it an opera that Groucho says, like, well, the quartet is complete. You know, we might as well mm. sing Sweet Adeline, which really drives home the point. Um, and I also, Alan Jones is so likable. And, you know, Marx Brothers fans tend to like him, even if they don't like his position in the story so much. Um, so there's a kind of desire to think of him as part of the team. Yeah. Uh, but um, but I think everything you say is is right on. And their lives were so different. You know, Alan Jones had a son that went on to be a, a great singer on his own. And Zeppo had a son who threw rocks at girls. So. <laughs> Hey, you can do both, Bob. Listen, get, a young man time. doesn't have to decide between. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree as well. Um, I think there's a slight confusion, or not confusion, but a misconception about what the problem with Zeppo was. I think we, we tend to say, uh, you know, the reason why Zeppo didn't fit, the reason why he eventually left was because there was no way of making him funny. And as I, I never tire of saying, it was incredibly easy to make him funny. You give him a couple of jokes. And the example I always give is is the scene in Duck Soup where um, the, the Chamber of Deputies uh, and all you have to do is just give him one of Groucho's lines for every two or three of Groucho's. You know, Zeppo could easily have said, he's right, you, you've got to take up the tax before you take up the, take up the carpet. Right. Um, the problem with Zeppo isn't that he's, he's, he's not given a chance to be funny, it's that he has 
he fundamentally serves no purpose. He's he's an absolute uh, unnecessary fixture, and and that's the thing that they never they never got round. There's nothing wrong with him. He's a perfectly ingratiating, you know, performer within his limits. And if you give him a couple of joke lines, I'm I'm sure he would have delivered them more than adequately. It's that the the stories never really need him. They find a place for him, but he's not actually needed. And that's 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 the problem with him. Um, and certainly, you know, once we get onto something like A Night at the Opera, where the, the Rodolfo character isn't anything like a Zeppo character, it's absolutely essential. It's part of the, the Thalberg master plan. It's a, it's a huge chunk of what the film is, as you quite rightly say, the idea in a million years that that would have been entrusted to uh, but poor dear lovable Zeppo. Uh, it's, it's just unthinkable. Although he did serve sort of a purpose in Monkey Business, in particularly Horse Feathers, because Margaret Dumont was not there, and Groucho needed someone to insult for no reason whatsoever who was around him, and Zeppo sort of filled that role. Yeah, but it still could have been anyone. It, there was no reason for that to be a Marx brother. He's not. He's not being a Marx brother in those films. Although you know, the, the closest I guess is is you know the Maurice Chevalier bits. You know where he's he's he feels very much one of the gang there. Although he's still this weird stiff straight guy in a suit who's not funny. But but he is he sort of you, you almost get a sense that they might hang about with him. But the rest of the time, there's no reason to think they would hang about with him. Which is why he always has a very specific relationship in the way that the others don't. There's no real reason why Ravelli uh, and Spalding should get together. They just do. But if Zeppo was at that party. He wouldn't be allowed in on the fun at all unless he worked for Groucho or unless he was Groucho's son in Horse Feathers. His relationship with them is always very specific because otherwise he just wouldn't wouldn't be allowed into that gang. Matthew has mentioned many places before if had Zeppo remained with the team through opera, a night at the opera, he almost certainly would have been Otis Driftwood's personal secretary or something similar. Yes. It's also another reminder of how dependent the Marx Brothers were on their writers, you know, and writing for Groucho was extremely challenging and writing for Chico was almost impossible and writing for Harpo was impossible. So by the time you had fought your way up those three mountains, um, Zeppo, who exerted less power behind the scenes and didn't have much pull with the writers, couldn't go in and campaign heavily for more lines or anything. Um, I think uh, the towel was thrown in. I just wonder if when all that material was cut from Duck Soups that uh, supposedly he had a much bigger part in when they filmed, when that stuff was cut, I wonder if that was just the last straw for him. Not that he vested so much in that one role, but just he just said, eh, what's the point of this? Yeah, what's the point? Rather than uh, right, that's it. I'm off. Yeah, he just yeah. What, you know, he obviously he did have talents. Yeah, he was you know, he he was a a clever man and an engineer and, and and all that stuff. And he must have just thought, why am I wasting my time doing this? We we know he tried writing a few screenplays that had never got anywhere. And mm. uh, he he must have, especially as he was starting to get older, as they all were. He was this you know this juvenile. You know, I'm I'm playing Groucho's son for God's sake. You know, or, or I'm always just saying yes, sir. You know, it wasn't so much that I think uh, I think it's a slight mistake to think he was he was straining to be a comedian. And I don't think he was particularly. I think he just woke up one morning and thought, there's really not much point to this. I'll do something else. But I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate on my own point here. Um, if there's one thing we know from looking at Zeppo's life is that I think he liked the perks of being a star. He liked the, the, the privileges and, and certainly he liked the money. And I wonder how much of a inconvenience being a Marx brother actually was for him. You know, they only made one film a year. You know, he wasn't yes. even on the set very much when they were making them. I mean, you know, uh, I could see him. I could see if he had remained for opera, like, okay, you guys go on tour. I'll stay here. I'll you let yes. me know when you need me. 
I'll be there for two weeks, three weeks. I'll be on set and then I'm done for the year. You know, he very easily could have remained with the team in that capacity. Nobody yeah. would have known the difference. I wonder if maybe he didn't mind his duties within the team as much as he minded that his name had become synonymous with being extraneous. It is really amazing when you go back and look at the news clippings, because back in the 20s and 30s, reporters and columnists were generally so they weren't mean-spirited. They were very kind to people, but they had absolutely no qualms to mm. referring to Zeppo as no talent for yes. no reason. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Will. Yeah. As, as if that was his shtick, you know, as if that was his uh, yeah, yeah. his persona. Yeah. Yeah. Wilcott's review of I'll Say She Is says uh, Leonard Marx is repressed until the, or is suppressed until the property man remembers to leave a piano on stage. And Herbert Marx is probably the property man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, something that really amused me when I was watching um, Animal Crackers again for when I was writing my my, my first book uh, was not only is he is he hardly in it he's in it for literally about ten minutes and there's a gap of about an hour between his first appearance and his second but also even even within that he's in it for vastly less than he should be you can actually see him sneaking off and on again in his first and last <laughs> scenes he introduces uh, Groucho and then you know he really should be there for the whole of that scene but he isn't he, you can you can actually see him sneaking off and he does the same at the end he sneaks off and then just in time to get uh, intoxicated by harpo's flit he sneaks back on so you know he obviously had absolutely no qualms about saying look i'm just going to do what i need to do and the rest of the time i'm just not involved i'm not interested you know see if alan jones had been playing jamison he would he would have stuck around for the whole number yeah well, the best role I see in A Night at the Opera, as it exists now, the best role for Zeppel would have been the uh, the steward who takes the hard-boiled egg order. That seems to be the most oh, yeah. Zeppel-ish <laughs> of all the characters. <laughs> so, Matthew, what do you got for us? Yeah, I mean, again, I've, I eventually ended up with a with a, a general one rather than a, a factual one, but I got there by a, a, a process of elimination. I started off um, thinking, oh, here would be my, my chance to talk about a night in Casablanca and uh, the supposed exchange of letters between Warner Brothers and Groucho over the, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that Warners would have objected first to the title of the film and then would have been concerned by the content. Um, I think most people now uh, accept that there's there's slightly less to this than than the traditional story. I think it, the, the idea that it, it, there wasn't really an initial letter from Warner's that it was something that the the Marx camp kind of goaded them into um, is is I think generally now accepted. But but my my position that there was no substance to any of it, that there were never any letters from Warner's at all, uh, that the whole thing was just a, a fictitious uh, scam, is is I think still a, a little. Um, a little controversial. So I was going to talk about that, but then I thought that's so um, intricate and so interesting that maybe that's a, that's a separate discussion. So I thought, okay, think smaller. Uh, and then I went to uh, some of the things I said in my, my second book about uh, things that Groucho was supposed to have said or supposed to have done um, or, or things that he claimed, you know, that, that Margaret Dumont didn't get the jokes that he, he got, stuck in traffic dressed as napoleon um or, or my favorite one is is um the the supposed exchange between sam wood and groucho in uh, on the set of a day at the races you, you can't make an actor out of clay or a director out of wood um which is, 
unquestionably originates with a, a publicity piece that was released to uh, to the newspapers by by the studio and therefore has no greater claim to uh, to to us uh, to our believing in it than, than any of the dozens and dozens of other publicity pieces that, that were sent um, it's possible that it may have been true but it's overwhelmingly likely that it that it wasn't it sounds written it sounds obviously like a joke that somebody's written but because it's funny because it's witty we we choose to, to believe it and I thought of a few others like that and then I, I kind of realized that really they were all examples of the same thing. And and that, that thing was the kind of overarching Groucho myth, which is simply that, that, that Julius Henry Marx was Groucho, that, uh, that, that, that's that iconoclastic, incredibly witty, wisecracking, um, you know, unstoppable comic character was merely a, a, you know, a reflection of, of the real man that he just put on a costume and, and, uh, and a fake mustache uh, and he was ready to go. And I, I think Groucho is really the, the, the last of the great screen comedians of the 20s, 30s and 40s that we still refuse to, to disassociate from his screen persona. Um, until recently, there was there was W.C. Fields as well. Uh, the very carefully cultivated um, image of him as a, you know, a misanthropic drunken curmudgeon uh, that he cultivated and, and his publicists cultivated. There are whole biographies of him, you know, that, that, that take that as as gospel. But of now the, the research has been done, the biographies have been written, and we know that that was a very careful, a careful act. But Groucho is, you know, is the last one that we still cling to this idea that that, uh, that what you see is, is what you get. And I think the reason why is because to think otherwise would be to diminish him in some way. Nobody has any problem accepting that Stan Laurel was not a simpleton and in fact was was the, the the main creative force behind Laurel and Hardy. Nobody has a problem with accepting that Charlie Chaplin wasn't a you know a tramp in, in a world of uh, of bullies uh, was in fact an incredibly shrewd businessman because these things add to them. But I think there's a fear in people that if you take some of Groucho's, uh, you know, uh, characteristics uh, of, of his persona away from him, you have a diminished, a diminished man. And, and that is a big fear, I think, for people because they want him to be the man they see. Uh, there's also a degree of confusion, as I say in my, my book, because there is there are kind of there's there's three Groucho's actually, not not two. There's the there's the movie Groucho, who is Mr. Hammer and Captain Spaulding and Professor Wagstaff and so on. And there's Julius Marks, the real man. But there's also an actor called Groucho who is the person who appears on You Bet Your Life and the person who writes Memoirs of a Mangy Lover. Uh, but that's that's kind of a, that's a persona, too. That That's a role, too. And I think people want him to be as big as he is, uh, as his comic persona is. And the real Groucho, you know, was kind of a quiet man and, a, and a, you know, not, not you know, a, a, in a nice way, an ordinary man. And particularly in relation to his other brothers as well, I think people just instinctively even, it may not even be conscious, but they just instinctively think that that, that isn't right, that doesn't fit. In the films, he's the dominating character. He's always the main character. He's always the pivot around which the plot and the other characters revolve. He always gets top billing. Um, but in real life, he's sort of he's sort of dwarfed by Harpo, who was this you know famously uh, lovable, fascinating man. Uh, and by Chico, who's this fabulously 
profligate gambler and womanizer. And Groucho's sort of in the shade. He's kind of the Zeppo of the act in real life. In fact, he's not even that, because in real life, you know, the, one of the few things that we know about Zeppo is that he was much bigger and more intelligent and funnier than he seems on, on screen. So it just seems wrong to us. And I think we sort of go looking for anything that 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 enables us to cling to this idea that Groucho was what we want him to be. And that includes negative things as well. I think the idea that he was, uh, you know, a misogynist or a misanthrope or a terrible father or a terrible husband. Uh, I think we all, we also exaggerate that from very, very slender evidence. And it gets uh, via the snowball process that gets exaggerated from biography to biography to biography, simply because we we want him to be more than he really was. If you look at um, Miriam's book of letters, Love Groucho, she says, I have nothing but good thoughts of him. I have nothing but good memories of him. He was a wonderful father and he was a, a lovely man. And when you read the letters, you can see that, yes, there are some horrendous misunderstandings between them. But it really is uh, 50-50. They, they, it, and the bond of love between them is so strong. He was, you know, he was a good man. He was a sort of an ordinary man, a quiet man who liked living at home. He just he, he wasn't what we want him to be. And when you when you say that, people bristle they they don't it's not so much that they don't believe you or that they won't give the idea credence they don't want that groucho they want him to be uh wildly witty spontaneous rude iconoclastic and at times in life he he felt the pressure to be that and he and he tried to live up to it and it usually ended pretty disastrously you know the, the idea that he could never offend people even when he wanted to it isn't true you know he did uh he did say very crass things that people took the wrong way and um you know particularly when he was older and uh you know was was with Erin's um involvement behind the scenes where he you know the 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 pressure was really on him to be Groucho I see a man there who is uh who's not happy and who would rather just just talk about his films seriously talk about his career seriously um and I think that you know the time is coming where we do have to let go to some extent of that of that idea that Groucho that Julius is uh, is Groucho and Groucho is is Spalding yeah and I think it requires a revision of the way we respond uh, viscerally to an act of genius. You know, people feel a little bit disillusioned by the idea that um, a, a great genius of an artist was also just a competent professional doing his job. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, a brilliant job. You know, in, in a way, it diminishes him. Uh, you know, if you don't think it's a, it's a, it's a performance. So many people said back uh, in the day when he was making films, they thought he was making the jokes up on the spot, you know, and I, mm. going back even onto the stage, they thought he was being spontaneous and it was coming off the top of his head. So that contributed to it somewhat. But more important point is that when he, quote unquote, supposedly left the act after uh, the big store and can try to forge a solo career, he pretty much played the same character, except for, you know, in a handful of films. When he did, was doing his radio appearances, he was pretty much doing the mustache character. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not like he said, okay, I'm going to be myself now or I'm going to drop that persona. He just continued with it, but, you know, in a more real life vein. So 
I think he would have taken offers if they'd come to him to do something radically different. Uh, those offers just didn't come. And it, and it was a big frustration to him, particularly in the 40s, that uh, he wasn't getting you know, many offers to do much of anything. Um, but, but yes, I mean, if he'd chosen in 1941 to change his professional name to Julius, for instance, uh, that, that would have been a, a very significant thing. But because he had this ridiculous name that owed its existence to a, to an, to a separate act, from which he was now now severed, it created a, a, an inescapable, um, you know, confusion as to who he was and what he was what he was doing. It's also not not just the fact that he was able to make it seem like he was making up all that dialogue on the spot, uh, whether it's the dialogue in the plays and films or or on the quiz show. Uh, it's that the ability to create that illusion in your line readings is developed over the course of years and years of working in front of an audience. Uh, you, you know, I mean, the um, you can perhaps smell Groucho's resentment about that because, um, you know, um, it's, it's very attractive for the audience to feel like these people were just born talented. You know, they wake up every morning endowed with gifts beyond that of most mortals um, to just stand up and make people laugh. But these are really hard-won skills. Yes. Uh, you know, it's some, you know, baked-into-the-cake genius uh, must be part of it. Um, but I-, I would say not the most significant part. And for Groucho in particular, who always seemed to have more to prove than his brothers, um, I-, I think that was part of his misanthropy. How lucky you are to be a genius. Yeah, and nobody says, you know, all the all the hundreds of people who said, oh, he was, you know, he was this, he was what you, you know, what you saw was what you got. He was so witty. He was so, so, uh, you know, devastatingly uh, frank and iconoclastic. Nobody says that about him at all until after uh, he he took on that that persona on stage. Nobody remembered him as a child that way. Quite the opposite. He was a quiet, owlish you know character nobody you know who who worked on him worked with him in in um earlier projects and said that about him it was only when the stage groucho emerged that the idea that the real groucho was was that person emerged uh likewise mm-hmm. you know nobody says when he was a boy he was devastatingly witty they say the opposite and even if you read the interviews with him done in the 30s or early 40s when he's not really playing a character when he's just being interviewed he's mm. quite thoughtful he's not trying to put on a show it wasn't yeah it's not till the mid-40s that he thought though i have to be groucho all the time and it's always kind of a strain in real life you know it's never i mean once in a while you know he does he does uh hit big with it with a great with a great line uh, on interviews and things but but a lot of the time you know it's it's so so i don't mean to be rude you know i mean it, it's he's always entertaining he's always a delight um, but you can see him straining to be Groucho. So do you think his demeanor in the Marx Brothers scrapbook and those interviews is him overreaching, trying to, to be the Groucho we want? Yes. Do you, do you mean specifically the um, the, the, the contentious uh, language and so on? Or, or just generally? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think that's him. I think that's him straining to be hip. Yeah. I think that's him straining to be, uh, yeah. you know, countercultural. I think he thinks that I now, my audience now is kids, uh, radical kids. This is what they want. And I think he just very slightly miscalculated. I think if, he, you know, I, I, nobody had a problem with the swearing. You know, that was, that was, I don't think that would have, would have been an issue, but the, you know, the, the, the rudeness about, uh, you know, individuals and their, and their, whether it's their sexual identity or whatever, you know, I think he just slightly missed the point there, but that's what he's doing. I think, yeah, he's thinking I'm talking to, to hip kids now. This is, this is what they want these days. In the Charlotte Chandler book, he tells, uh, 
Chandler, uh, she says, I, I don't think I've ever heard you use a four letter word. And he says, I've used them, but not with you. Yes. You know, you should have been here when I was talking to Richard and Oberlin. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to switch gears to something that is probably familiar to some of you, but uh, to a lot of you, maybe not so much. So take a listen to this. Well, I thought my razor was dull until I heard his speech. And that reminds me of a story that's so dirty, I'm ashamed to think of it myself. Professor Wagstaff, of course, is the inimitable Groucho Marx. Senor Emmanuel Ravelli. How do you do? Say, I used to know a fellow looked exactly like you by the name of uh, Emmanuel Ravelli. Are you his brother? I'm Emmanuel Ravelli. You're Emmanuel Ravelli? I'm Emmanuel Ravelli. Well, no wonder you look like him. But I still insist there is a resemblance. <laughs> He thinks I look alike. Senor Ravelli, of course, is the inimitable Chico Marx. And last but not least, for the first time on any record, the one and only Harpo Marx. The gate swung open and a fig Newton entered. How do you do? Who is he? That's my partner, but he not speak. Oh, that's your silent partner. Yes, these are the fabulous Marx Brothers, who created a style of comedy that has never been matched. So that was a bit of a long-playing album from 1969 called The Marx Brothers, the original voice tracks from their greatest movies, uh, which was released on Decca Records, a subsidy of Universal, which owned the Marx Brothers Paramount Films. This is a Wonderful artifact for people of my generation who grew up in the 60s and 70s. You know, back then, other than going to the films or when they came on TV, if we wanted to enjoy the Marx Brothers, it was uh, listen to this album or get the Richard Nobley books, the Wyatt Duck and so forth. Uh, we could read about the Marxes, but if we wanted to enjoy their humor at home, this was it. And to be honest, they really did a fantastic job. Some of the stuff is you know, a little dated and there's some confusing things in it. But overall, I can't imagine a, a better gateway into the Marxists. Well, I, I had this album when I was a teenager. I'm not, uh, I wasn't part of the the first generation that enjoyed this record. But um, during the Marx mania of my adolescence, I distinctly remember on a single trip to a used record store, acquiring this record and also the um, orange boxed three disc set. Uh, you know, it's like three hours, 59 minutes and 21 seconds with the Marx Brothers or something like that. Um, and took both of those home. And yeah, I mean, it certainly does fit in with Anobili's um, Why a Duck and all of these other pre-home video solutions to access, you know, ways of having the Marx Brothers films, uh, or at least parts of their content on your shelf at home to enjoy whenever you want. Uh, and it serves that purpose well. Um, I agree with you, Bob, that there are aspects of, of the record that are seem a little dated or, um, you know, sort of quaint now, but uh, that's fine. It, you know, it is from 1969. Um, I assume we'll, we'll talk in detail about some of the some of the specific quirks here. Um, but I just wanted to mention um, up front, you know, besides Gary Owens, who has an iconic voice and, you know, is known from Laugh-In, and he was the original voice of Space Ghost, let's not forget. Mm -hmm. um, also, the musical tags on this record, which are in some cases derived from Marx Brothers music, um, 
are conducted. Oh, and, and also they've been used on our podcast a lot. Bob has used as uh, bumpers. Some I was the, going to say, they've, they've st- yeah. been stolen from us. I, I don't, I suppose they've been stolen from it's, us. It's yeah. too late, I guess, to get any redress here. But they stole our intro music. <laughs> but the conductor of the actual musical recordings used on the record is Charles Dant, also known as Bud, Charles Bud Dant. Who, is he related to Larry Bud Melman? <laughs> I strongly doubt it, but he co-wrote Stardust with Hoagy Carmichael and Mitchell Parrish, <laughs> arguably the greatest song ever written, or, or if any song can be called the greatest ever written, uh, it must be Stardust. And uh, he was one third of that achievement. Mm-hmm. These albums were produced by Gil Rodin and Johnny Wayne. Johnny Wayne, of course, is the Wayne from Wayne and Schuster, who did the affectionate look. Ah. Uh, special uh, yeah. done in 1965 in Canada, and the producer of that show was Gil Rodin, who is who uh, produced. And then they together put this record together as one of similar ones for W.C. Fields and Mae West, also using a uh, Universal Paramount material. And actually, I think uh, on our blog post we will post the W.C. Fields version of this album. Uh, the Marx Brothers one is not really online, but it is not hard to find. This one you could be find it on eBay. And uh, use Amazon and so forth. It should not be hard to find. So go look for it. Also on the blog post, we're going to post the uh, the gatefold cover to this, which opens up, and on the, both the inside and the outside have some wonderful uh, images. The outside cover is a psychedelic drawing, uh, very nicely done, and with Groucho Harpo and Chico front and center, and Zeppo sort of lurking in the background if you look closely, <laughs> and then the rest of the collage which continues in the back is looks mainly to be from the stateroom scene including the wonderful manicurist uh, <laughs> but none of the mgm material is actually used on the album so there was not a lot of good communication there <laughs> between the art department and the producers you know in 1969 it must have been particularly valuable that uh, there are so many sound clips from animal crackers uh, on this record when animal crackers wasn't easily available at all. Yes, yeah, so for, for a lot of people, this was the first time to hear Animal Crackers material. Yeah. And um, interesting story, I was talking to Robert Bader about this a couple of months ago, and I brought this up, and he, according to him, this was totally inadvertent, that the producers putting the record together did not realize that they were not supposed to be using the Animal Crackers material, and they did, and apparently it just went under the radar and nobody noticed that it shouldn't have been there. Hmm. Uh, for a lot of people, this was the first time they were able to hear the original Captain Spaulding song as the film had been out of circulation for um, for about 15 years. And, yeah. you know, when you just listen to the song without the visuals, that edit in the middle of the song is not noticeable. just thought that's how the song was constructed it never stuck out to me in the narration uh, gary owens refers to it as a collector's item here's a real collector's <laughs> well, item. oh it really was because it was really yeah. no way to see it i don't know if people who aren't old enough will know that it was quite a coup to get gary owens to do this album because uh, laughing was the biggest tv show of the era and to get one of the stars of the show and he actually was a star he was the announcer but he was on screen for quite a bit you know to get him was quite a coup well, that's that's where I come in, I guess, because um, I'm a very unusual Marx Brothers fan in that 
um, I had not heard of this album for, for, for such a for such a, um, you know a formative influence for so many people. Um, I'd literally not heard of it for a long time because a I'm British and b I'm a mere child of 45 45 last Wednesday. Um, but also um, until this week or last week I hadn't even heard it, so I knew that it was a huge deal for loads and loads of loads of people. But it had totally passed me by and and so had Gary Owens I mean I vaguely I'd seen Laughing a few times but you know it didn't really mean much to me I'd seen Penelope Pitstop which I, I believe <laughs> he did he did the voice for and also a, a film called Dr. Fibes Rises Again that he narrates I was familiar with those but I had no idea who he was so to me I, I'm coming to it totally fresh as a as a, as a brand new uh, a, a brand new artifact so it's it's my kind of uh, take on it is going to be you know, radically different from from anyone else's, um, and it is um, the the first thing that struck me was was that that um, it, it draws from a fairly small pool. There's a there's a, a lot of uh, an awful lot of um, horse feathers stuff with professors and things, um, and animal crackers, and and not not a not a great deal else. Um, the other thing that, that that really struck me was was uh, obviously the the redubbed portions which doesn't yes. don't seem to have a particular rationale to them that the person who introduces professor quincy adams wagstaff is taken from the soundtrack but uh, i think it's robert greek who announces emmanuel ravelli uh, is replaced by not only a, a new voice but a voice doing a really yeah. bad italian accent i've no idea why yeah. it can't it can't be a copyright payment thing surely i mean there was no robert greek estate that would have been hungry for for bucks if they used his voice I and mean, obviously the, the extreme example is the scene with Harpo and uh, Kay yeah. Francis, which is an entirely <laughs> reconstructed scene because it, the, it's not her voice. And, the, you know, the Harpo noise is a, a cold from all over. So they've they've built up a scene from from nothing. They, they, they've made no attempt to make these re-recording sound vintage in, no. in, in any way. It's Do just we, a, a current recording and then a clip of a honk from 60 years ago. Yeah, I, I don't know if we know why they did that. That one I can sort of understand because in the actual scene with Kay Francis and Coconuts, mostly Harpo just nods. Um, and so hmm. I think they must have seen that as an opportunity to make a little Harpo radio scene by taking her lines and giving him whistles and honks instead of gestures. But it radically changes um, that scene, you know, they, you know, obviously, because him being coy yeah, is, is it's, the joke, isn't it? It's pretty contrived, yeah. But I guess they must have been reaching for ways to get Harpo onto the record. Mm. I mean, they do use over and over again some of, like, from the the honks in Duck Soup when he uses the various horns to carry on half of a telephone call. That that slamming down the receiver, boom, 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 that honk. uh, We hear it at least three times, I think, (laughs) on the record. I think they did a really good job of giving a nice overview, at least of the verbal side of the Marxist humor. You know, they've, they've picked some really nice clips, and this very easily could have gone off the rails, and it didn't. There is some uh, a charming but rather brazen um, counterculture pandering, um, yes. especially some of the, the the intros to some of the Groucho stuff, you know, like here he socks it to the head of a university. <laughs> you know, like, here you go, kids. Here's Groucho pissing someone off. <laughs> Just imagine what he would have made of the Vietnam War when you listen to this section. Yeah. <laughs> I was saying earlier that this was a real good gateway to the Marxist you know, sometimes kids today might be turned off by these old black and white images. 
And if, if you're in a, like a car trip or something and you just throw this on and they hear this funny dialogue, they might, yeah, they might say, hmm, this is pretty, this is pretty funny. You know, uh, they might listen to it and start enjoying it without the preconception that they're listening to some old, uh, 80 year old material. So, you know, it's a, the, the album's all a hair over 30 minutes long. So stick it on your kid's MP3 player or use it on your next car trip. I think you might, uh, turn on a new Marx fan. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure we, even, even I, you know, most of my Marx Brothers uh, formative years did overlap with the home video era, but I still remember taking a cassette recorder and holding it up to the TV to record the, you know, dialogue from Marx Brothers movies. Yeah, me too. So that I could listen to it in my bedroom later and, and also uh, transcribing in a notebook almost the entire film, Animal Crackers, like pausing it after every line so that I could write it down just so that I could have the pleasure of reading the script. Um, so these projects like the, this Gary Owens record or the Anobly books, um, you know, it's all part of a very well-intentioned and, and necessary scheme to possess this material and, and own the Marx Brothers, have the Marx Brothers. Exactly. I, I also realized, re-listening re to it for the purposes of this podcast, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was, I think, influenced a little bit by the Gary Owens narration when I did that uh, fake history of the Marx Brothers, um, which you can find on the Council uh, Facebook group or it's on YouTube. Uh, you know, he says... Uh, I, I wrote it down. Uh, yes, these are the fabulous Marx Brothers who created a style of comedy that has never been matched. You know, uh, my line was, uh, they created a legacy of laughter that continues to this day. And there's there's something about that um, mm. sort of cheesy announcer take on iconoclasm that uh, must have gotten under my skin. So do we think that Gary Owens was essentially a Zeppo replacement? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Zeppo is represented here on the cover. He's in the background. But he is not mentioned or acknowledged at all on the record. No, he's there, isn't he? But they don't even mention him, yeah. Which must have been quite a sad thing for him <laughs> to pick up the record. Yeah, he was alive, wasn't he? He must have, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think he could? they could have built a little four-minute uh, track of the album of this Zeppelin material? Would that have been a difficult thing? <laughs> they should yeah, have had a, a separate disc, all of Zeppo. Yeah. <laughs> and the fourth brother, Zeppo, who was strange but also nondescript. <laughs> And one last thing I want to bring up is that when you look at the cover here, uh, you'll see that it says free pop poster inside. Pop poster. Pop yes. poster. And when you open up the album, you were treated to a nice poster of the three brothers from At the Circus, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the MGM uh, <laughs> contribution to this record. And I had this poster up in my room. And if you want. Can you prove it, Bob? I think I can do that. <laughs> if you want to go to. <laughs> Our blog site, you will see a uh, photo of me in my room circa, I'm going to say, uh, summer of, I'm going to say summer of 1972. And I apologize ahead of time for the bedspread that is on, <laughs> on my bed, but on the wall, you'll see that poster all nicely put up next to a picture of a Chicago White Sox player. <laughs> and, uh, I still have the album. I have my original copy of the album sitting right in front of me. I got it, I think, right around yeah, 1972. It was actually a cutout back then because the record I have has the hole punched in the record cover. But like I said, this is really a great artifact for Marx fans of my generation. This was a big contributing factor to why I became a fan of them. And uh, it's not to be forgotten. 
for many years now, I've been going around all the uh, secondhand record shops and stealing the poster from uh, from every copy that they had, because simply so that everyone who who bought their record secondhand would have exactly the same story to tell, which is I have the record, but unfortunately it doesn't have the poster in it uh, anymore. Uh, now is the time to admit that that's my fault. I uh, I've <laughs> been stealing. I currently I have thirty two thousand posters uh, that I've stolen from these records. So that's. Uh, Apart from Bob and, and everybody else who was lucky to get a first-hand copy, that's why you haven't got one. I did see a couple of copies online that did say included the poster. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, a couple of them. So it's, well, I don't know if it's really worth seeking out, but you might want to. We used to have a Sergeant Pepper with the with the moustaches and things in it. My dad bought it at the time, and it was uh, oh yeah. He had it right up until uh, myself and my sister were were born, and then we we cut them out and played with them, and that's now gone. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Well, if you want to hear something really sad, this is not Mark's related at all, but I'm going to tell it anyhow. That when I was about nine years old, we were living in Florida, and this is when Disney World was being built in upstate Florida, and one of the people designing uh, Disney World came down to visit us. It was an old friend of my dad's, and he brought me a, a an animation cell from the Jungle Book. It was okay. framed. It was a beautiful painted cell on, on, on a background, and it was really beautiful. But me being a curious kid, within six months or a year, I had sort of opened it up, taking, the, taking it apart, taking the plastic off the background. I, I wanted to see exactly how this was... How this was put together and what the point of it was, how it worked. And now I know that's, that probably was worth tens of thousands, <laughs> yeah. tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And my, my grandfather had Lawrence of Arabia's overcoat. He bought it from Lawrence of Arabia and he wore it until it wore out and he threw it away. <laughs> so now we're going to move on to something totally different. Recently, Noah had the opportunity to speak with a special guest and we're going to play you that. Noah? We're going to hear part of a recent conversation between Les Marsden and me. Les Marsden, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, is one of the preeminent Marx Brothers revivalists. I first experienced his work when I was 15 years old in 1992 in a production of Animal Crackers at the Goodspeed Opera House, which was a very formative experience for me. And my first exposure, uh, not only to Les in the role of Harpo, but also to previous uh, Marx Brothers Council podcast guest Frank Ferrante in the role of Groucho. Uh, like Frank, Les uh, knocked my socks off and sort of pointed me toward the idea that reviving the Marx Brothers Broadway musicals on stage might just be the noblest endeavor available to humanity. Les is the only major performer who has extensively played all three of the major Marx Brothers, though not simultaneously, uh, I'm sure he could. Uh. Uh, he talks about that and more in our conversation. I can't remember the very first time that I saw the brothers, but it had to have been when I was a kid or at least, you know, in a very young adolescent. And I remember it's that perfect age. And I'm sure many of us have in, con uh, in, in common who were exposed to the, the brothers at an early age. You're at the perfect age where you identify with outsiders and I iconoclasm. And uh, they just strike that. I mean, you know. They hit you in a way that Laurel and Hardy don't quite, because they're not the subversive outsiders that I think some of us are at that age. And that's all it took for me. I thought, wow, these guys are phenomenal. And and I wish I could recall the age I was, but it then became somewhat a practical application when 
a friend of mine in high school said, let's let's put together an act for the school talent show. And I said, great, let's do the Marx Brothers. And I wanted to do Groucho. But my friend also wanted to do Groucho, and he had a mustache, and he wouldn't shave it off. And so that kind of became that, um, strictly because he was being stubborn and wouldn't sh- shave off the damn mustache. He got to be Groucho, which was perfectly fine, because at that point, I realized, just as Harpo did, you know, I can up- upstage the Groucho guy without saying a word, which wasn't my intent. Of course, I wanted to perform with fidelity to the character. And and the more I got into my research, I, I, I'm compulsive and I always have been. And the more I got into this need to learn everything I possibly could, the more I fell in love with Harpo. And at that point, I think I, I had not yet begun playing the harp, but I had already been playing virtually everything else. And so it was an easy step then to uh, get access to the harp at the um, college where I then my senior year of high school, they let me attend both at the same time. So I was half of the day at the high school, half the day in college already. And so I got access to the the harp practice room and began to teach myself the harp. And uh, that was the beginnings of that. And there was just something that immediately uh, that that harp sucked me in, you know, and it was a combination of what he did, but also the instrument itself. My first uh, awareness of you was in 1992. I was 15 and I had this formative experience of seeing Animal Crackers at the Goodspeed Opera House. When you played the harp, I remember so uh, vividly the palpable gasp in the audience um, because you had already, by that point in the evening, proven yourself as this uncanny Harpo revivalist, and it seemed too much to hope for that you would then sit down at the harp and deliver not just a harp solo, but a harp solo uh, worthy of Harpo. It was so important to do that because I have seen too many people doing Harpo, and then either the harp is insulted by it being turned into a prop rather than a musical instrument, and it also denies a very important part of who Harpo was on stage as well as off. And so my feeling going way back to, and this was about the time I began developing the idea of my one-man show, was if I'm going to be playing Harpo, I have got to go out there and sell the thought. I want to make sure I can break that wall down as much as possible so that the audience can for a moment think, oh, maybe I really am watching Harpo. And I, that was so important for me. And and there, there always has been that wonderful, wonderful moment. And I tried to tease it a bit because you know that they're thinking, oh, how is he going to get away with this? There's a harp out there now. How are they going to, are they going to resort to the old, you know, shooting arrows out of it again and then it's gone? And so I've always teased that very moment of what to do with the harp as Harpo, you know, certainly not wanting to move myself out of Harpo and become less teasing as a heart, you know, but then that very beginning and it's what you describe that hush that that all of a sudden the audience goes he's playing he really is playing and then to build the solo in a way that it's like okay it begins a little simply perhaps or a little um 
nothing, nothing, you know, maybe somebody who could, but then to really get into it and do it in Harpo style and to, to embellish it with a lot of his own technique. And, and so I want it to be something that, that not only will, well, the thing that was really cool, Susan, when I, and I can't remember if it was early on when she first saw my show, um, said that when I most reminded her of Harpo was when I played the harp. And that to me was one of the greatest compliments I could ever receive, because that is, I think one of the greatest, um, challenges in playing Harpo. And if I had surmounted it to that point where that was such an important thing for her seeing it, then I felt like I really had maybe, maybe found myself worthy of playing her husband. I seem to remember, it's 25 years ago, uh, but I seem to remember your bio in that program ending with a sentence to the effect of, and yes, he really is playing that harp. And I would have to put that in. Something else that I would do is I'd throw in clinkers from time to time. There would be times when I would feel as though I have to throw in a bad note here and there. I have to mispedal. I have to do something just because, you know, it, it's going too well and people are thinking it's got to be recording. So, you know, because that happened to him in real life. And you can certainly hear it in some of the harp solos where he throws in a clinker. You know, I'm sure he wasn't doing it on purpose because he didn't have to prove himself. But there were times when I would do that simply because it was like, okay, folks, I really am playing, and oh, here's an accident. That's not on a playback. Now, you're one of the, I think the only person, to my knowledge, who has uh, notably played all three of the major Marx Brothers, and um, including, of course, their musical performances. And um, it always seems to me that there's such a distinction between Harpo and Chico um, and their approach to their solos. Um, The way Chico's piano solos are performative and um, um, comedic, um, and of course his technical mastery is astounding too. Um, but Harpo, except sometimes there's a few gags early in the solo, uh, it's dead serious business when he sits down to play the harp. And and there are those few moments, and I they're actually in, and if I'm remembering properly, I think in that production of Animal Crackers, I did put one in the, uh, of those slight comedic moments, and that was, I think, after an arpeggiation, then there was, I think, a turn to the audience and a tink, tink, which I loved when he did that, but he... I, 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 to me, I was always slightly removed when he would do something like that. And I always, there was a little something inside that said, oh, please don't do that. Please. Because your heart, you're showing us your heart in all of that moment. And sure, yeah, the, the comedy is wonderful too, but there's something about him seeming to be emotionally connected on a different level uh, during the harp solos. And so when he would do those little moments, much as I loved them, I would always, there would be a little wistful, oh, oh, please stay in that, that other moment, you know, show us more of your heart. Um, but yeah, so I, I did that from time to time in, in, and I think I did that in that production in Animal Crackers, that revival. Uh, you did get to spend a little time with Groucho in 1976. Yeah, not a lot. He and he was at that 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 point a shadow of himself. Uh, but yeah, I got to go to the house and 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 I have vivid memories of, of all of that. And and the, the funny thing is that I, I recall so much. Except whenever I try to think of his face, I have a blank right here. And of course, I know what he looked like. But you know, being in the house with him, uh, you know, I remember everything. I remember you know, the, you bet your life, duck hanging from a chandelier in the dining room. And I remember looking out. Uh, there was a little. Uh, rock garden and there was a rubber duck sitting on top of the whole tree by the door with the wigs and I you know I remember everything about that house and him in it except I have a little blank when it comes to his face and and you know I recall our conversations and everything of that but but uh, you know to me and I don't know if that that is some sort of 
Um, if it's my mind trying to keep him in some other special ethereal realm or what, but and, and not wanting to embrace Groucho as being part of reality, I, I don't know what. But you, you know, say maybe you never forget a face, but in his case, you made an exception. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good point. I never thought about that. So it's just a couple of years after you met Groucho, I guess, is, was the debut of A Night at Harpo's. And I've, I've read about that show, and I know a little bit about its content and its history, um, but I still uh, struggle to wrap my mind around the conception of a two-hour, two-act, one-person show about Harpo Marx. For me, the very beginning was, I mean, I thought, sure, it'd be easy enough to go out there and do, you know, two hours of recreating Harpo with the character. Um, or maybe not quite so easy, but at least that would be a roadmap. And I thought, what compels me the most about Harpo? And that is, what was he really like? What was he like in real life? Did he speak? You know, because a lot of people said, oh, uh, he couldn't speak, could he? And in fact, uh, uh, I, right off the top of the show, you hear me in voiceover as Harpo saying, um, and I, I, I can't remember where I read this, but it was apparently a true story that um, uh, somebody walked up to Groucho and said, um, uh, uh, Harpo really speaks, doesn't he? And Groucho said, no, and walked away. Way. And that's how I begin the show in voiceover. Um, and to me, it was very, very important to reveal a lot of the things that I felt that I could reveal because I wasn't actually him, but an actor portraying him. Um, you know, you would not expect Harpo, except, you know, maybe at the Pasadena Civic Auditorium or, or Santa Monica Civic Auditorium to go out there and speak to an audience. But what I told Susan from the very, very beginning was that, and, and again, I was this dopey kid in college when I first approached her. And the very beginning of that was... I, when I was still in, in college, I thought it would be so cool to do this one-man show idea on Harpo, but what I really wanted to do was show what he was really, really like because so many people do have these misconceptions. They don't have a clue about what he was really like, and, and they just think maybe that's how he was off stage too. He was always wearing this wig, and he never spoke, and he flitted around and did things to people. And so I I managed to get Susan's contact information, and I, I um, called her up one day out of the blue, and here I was. You know, I was like 19 or 20 or something, and I, I said, Hi, you know, I'm, I'm calling you. Uh, I, I would love to, die, you know, a kid in college, whatever I said. And I would love to do a one-man show on the life of your husband, if you wouldn't mind. And she said, well, I wouldn't mind. I would never allow that. Goodbye. And hung up. And that was it. And so I wrote her a long letter. And I said, look, please don't tell me I can't do it till I've had a chance to at least talk to you in person. So I sent that off didn't hear or hear a word back from her and you know months literally went by and I gave up on the idea because I did not want to do anything like this without her permission there would be ways of working around you know he's a public figure there are ways of working around the family but I never wanted to do that I wanted to work with the full cooperation of the family and I wanted to also try to work with the objective uh, cooperation of the family too if there were things that I felt the, the, the family was being a little too careful about out. I wanted to perhaps convince them that maybe these were things that the public would like to know. 
And so, you know, there was no response. So in the meanwhile, I thought, okay, well, I love Buster Keaton, too. How about a Buster Keaton one-man show? So I I found Eleanor's number, and I called her up. And bingo, right away, oh, yes, I think that would be lovely. I'd like to talk to you about that. And I said, terrific. You know, so then I got a letter back from Susan. And Susan said in her letter that was still fairly short and curt, um, you know, you can come down and meet me, but you can't do a show. And so we set up time for that. And you, you probably read this. I, I think that's in one of the interviews. And, and she completely flummoxed me when I, I had this uh, a terrible comedy of errors on the way down there that day. because A woman hit my car at a gas station in Encino and, uh, you know, all this stuff. And it was burning hot. It was July in, in the springs. And I finally got down there late. And I, I stopped at a Safeway and picked up this dumb little bouquet of flowers to, you know, help smooth the way. And so I got there late and, and, and went right running up to the, the front door and, and she answered it. And I thought, you know, it's going to be this, this woman who's going to hate my Gus. And, but it was this sweet little angel. And she answered the door and she said, you must be less. Come on in. And I said, I feel terrible. I'm so late. I, you know, and she said, Oh no, 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 don't worry about that at all. Would you like some lemonade? I was just going to make some lemonade. It's so much better with limes. Don't you think I, I'm going to go next door to the neighbors and I'm going to get some limes and, you know, look around the house, enjoy yourself. And I'll be right back. I thought, you know, what is it? She doesn't know me. And so I, I, but here I was in Harpo's house, you know, it was not the house he had lived in because, you know, that was, he had, he had died before she bought this house, but here were all of the things. I mean, there were some, some of the Decker paintings, there were Harpo's own, you know, the Harpo's blue boy, Har, you know, or the laughing cavalier and, and the four Marxists, remember, and, and, and there were his own oils. And, and I saw that that's when I saw the accordion player and her top banana frame that she had made for it. all this amazing stuff. And, and so then she comes back in a few minutes and First thing out of her mouth was, well, I feel like I can trust you. You can do whatever you want with the show. And and I thought, why did you put me through all this? And I don't think that was her intention. But I think that once she, she uh, hopefully, that, that she saw that I was sincere and that I wanted to do what I wanted to do with fidelity to the character. And it was because of a love of the character. But then, you know, I said, this is how I want it to work. I would love to show what he was really, really like. I would like to speak in his voice. And I said, but the one thing I will not do is speak in the costume. So I want to have Harpo become Arthur Marks. And and I at that point I w- because of the fact that it was it was very early on I only had some slight ideas of how I wanted to to approach this, but I I explained to her what I wanted to do and she liked the idea and our, on our first day we spoke for like four or five hours you know and I've, I've got tons and tons of hours of interview tape with her um, and and she insisted that I meet the kids and and that was kind of the beginning of the whole thing and so then I would you know keep her apprised of what I wanted to do and how as I was writing it and the the strange thing was that the actual writing of the play was was like pulling teeth. It was killing me. I had a, a premiere date set up for the university. And the problem was, as the months went by, I would write a draft. I would hate it, tear it up, throw it away. Write another draft, hate it, tear it up. And we were finally getting a little too close. And I still didn't have a script and I was starting to, you know, of course, not sleep too well. And I was starting to have all of those concerns. And could I really do this? And then one morning, I, well, I woke up in the middle of the night and the play was right there in front of me. It was like all I had to do was get up the next morning, start writing. And it was all there. And it was amazing. And I still can't understand how that happened. But and I've never had an experience like that again. But that was that. And, and that that script has had very, very few changes. Um 
that was the script. I, I, I remember at one point um, there was one line, one word, and I mean there have been a few changes, but I, one that I remember particularly, uh, I had Harpo talking about uh, a streetcar, and Nat Perrin came to see the show, and he said, oh, Harpo never would have said streetcar, he would have said trolley. So fine, I changed streetcar to trolley, and that was one of the changes. Um, but that's kind of how it all began, and that's how I think I saw the possibility of having a two-hour show about Harpo, because it was all the stuff that I wanted to, to have him tell an audience, and I wanted to also make it as honestly what Harpo could have done, rather than what Harpo, what I would have liked Harpo to have done. I didn't want to have him go out there and do things that he wouldn't have done. The second act is kind of fun, because there's a lot of voiceover from Susan. And I took some of the no, no, I because I, that that would have been inartistic to have used her own voice. So I would always have an actress, and 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 my favorite actress doing the role. She was absolutely wonderful. Anne Nelson, who played the little old lady in the airplane, the first airplane movie, <laughs> the one that was who, who was like bored to tears and hanged herself. She did an amazing Susan. Her voice was just like Susan, and so it was wonderful for me to be on stage and the the concept was that I was not hearing Susan, but that here I was and she was commenting on what I was doing at certain points. And 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 it worked so nicely. And so it basically moves chronologically through his life from the very beginning to near, nearly the end. Of course, you can't have him die on stage. And 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 I didn't want to do that anyway. But he, you know, near the end, all of the, the infirmities began to get caught, caught up with him. And then I leave it on that level that he left, leaves uh, uh, um, Harpo Speaks. And that was You're Only Young Forever. Where you know, after he had been told he can't play the harp, he can't do this, he can't do that because it'll kill him, he realized what's it worth living for anyway then. So he gets rid of all of these things. He goes back to playing the harp because you're only young forever. And that's how the, the show ends. Um, but, you know, so that's how you deal with doing two hours of harp on the stage. That was a tantalizing sample of my conversation with Mr. Les Marsden. You'll be able to hear my conversation with Les in its entirety as a bonus episode of the Marx Brothers Council podcast coming soon. Well, that does it for another episode of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. We had a good time here, and I hope you guys are liking what we're doing. If you do, please go on iTunes and give us some good reviews because that'll give us more exposure. And as Noah said, be looking soon for the full Les Marsden uh, interview uh, coming as a special bonus podcast. And uh, that about does it for here. Matthew, anything you need to add? Yeah, I just I should say that I, I didn't have a good time. I mean, if people did enjoy it, that's great. But uh, I, I didn't have a good time at all. I had a really bad time. Well, that's why we, I need to edit these uh, recordings <laughs> after we <laughs> do them. I'm being facetious. No, I, I, yes, I had a lovely time. You know, James Agee said that the worst podcast <laughs> we might ever do would be more worth listening to than anybody exactly. else's best podcast. And, and I think we've him? proven it this time. <laughs> so we're going to leave you with a appropriate music mm. track that I have yet to pick out. But here it is. <laughs> the flower 
love will I meet one sweeter than you? Would you turn away or could you really learn to care if I ever dare to say I love you? If the nightingales could sing like you, they'd sing much sweeter than they do. Oh, you brought a new kind of love to me. If the sad man brought me dreams of you, I'd want to sleep my whole life through. Oh, you brought a new kind of love to me. I know that you're the queen and I'm the slave and yet you will understand that underneath it all you're a maid and I am only a man. I would work and slave the whole day through if I could hurry home to you for you brought a new kind of love to me. If the nightingales could sing like you, they'd sing much sweeter than they do. <laughs> you brought a new kind of love to me. If the Sandman brought me dreams of you, I'd want to sleep my whole life through. <laughs> you brought a new kind of love to me. I know, I know that you're the queen, and I'm the slave, and yet you will understand that underneath it all, you're a maid, and I'm only a man, I would work and slave the whole day through, if I could hurry home to you, for you brought a new kind of love to me.